0: Keeping Democracy Alive with Burt Cohen. It's a struggle. Struggle Indeed. The news lately, Russian interference in the 2016 election, NFL players daring to take a kneel in protest against racism, Trump's daily insanities, and of course, Harvey Weinstein. The American media is feasting off these sensational stories. After all, the media depends on advertising revenue. And these things connect with large masses of people. So how many of us are aware of a war that could not happen without U.S. support that has caused mass starvation and a cholera epidemic that is worse than any the world has witnessed in the past 50 years, with the latest estimate of victims at well over a half a million? Who knows about that? The United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs declared last April that, quote, Yemen is the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. But who's heard about it here in the U.S.? The forces behind this war are counting on large-scale American ignorance and lack of concern for what's going on in the war in Yemen and how our tax dollars are being used. So even aside from any humanitarian concerns, our guest, retired U.S. Army colonel and former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, Lawrence Wilkerson is one of a growing number of American leaders who argue that our continued support for the Saudis in this terrible war is actually weakening America's national security. Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, Good to be back in New Hampshire.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, he he penned an op-ed in The Hill magazine, something that uh, is well read on The Hill in Washington, calling on Congress to end America's role in Saudi Arabia's war on Yemen. And at least three members of Congress from both parties are backing a resolution to do just that. But it is certainly an uphill battle, a struggle, if you will, given the near universal lack of awareness in the public arena. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Our guest has sat down at a table with Prince Bandar and with Turkey al-Fazal, as well as other Saudis, and has trained some of their pilots and soldiers. He is indeed quite knowledgeable about the Saudis. With your background as retired U.S. Army colonel and former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, uh, Let's say you have more gravitas than your garden-variety gaggle of the usual anti-war activists. Before we get into explaining America's role and the implications for the stability of the always-volatile Middle East, what was your purpose, Colonel, in writing this op-ed? Why you? Why now?
1: I had spent, along with several of my colleagues, uh, two weeks uh, on the Hill with the Congress, all Republicans, with the exception of one Democrat. Um, and it was to talk with them about two issues. One you've highlighted uh, prominently here, and that is the brutal, and that's the only way to refer to it, the brutal war in Yemen being waged by the UAE and Saudi Arabia with our support I'm sad to say and the other was an issue very dear to my heart as both an academic and 31 year veteran of the US Army and that is the war power which Congress has more or less abandoned of late Um, and given the executive branch the president Mm -hmm. the right to go to war almost any time he or she pleases with little umbrage from the Congress unless things go badly I even had one Republican um, essentially look at me in the course of these meetings and say, well, you know why that is, don't you? It's because if the president uses the military in some place and fails badly, then we can uh, really criticize him. We can throw arrows at him and so forth and so on. And we don't have any responsibility for it. On the other (laughs) hand... If the war succeeds uh, uproariously and the American people support it, then we can clap and cheer for him. We have the best of all possible worlds. I found that to be a statement of reality but also a statement that really hurt me in terms of my profession as a soldier and also my citizenship in this country. The Congress has abandoned its right, its its responsibility responsibility. under the Constitution for the war power. And this the uh, effort to get us out of Yemen gave me an opportunity to go after that.
0: Wow, yeah, and people forget about that. And it, it, it's a long history of presidents uh, skirting around the uh, the War Powers Act, the, the, the intent of our founders that Congress has to be the body that declares war. There's a reason they did that. And, you know, looking back, it does seem that, and I want to get to how this, you know, how we got into this war in Yemen, it does seem that the floodgates of war were opened up right after 9-11. So there was the Authorization for Use of Military Force, AUMF, which was issued by Congress in the wake of that attack. In what ways does this war not conform to the parameters laid out by that resolution? Did the AUMF not authorize the use of force in, say, Yemen?
1: The group that I'm working with, including Tom Massey, Republican from Kentucky, who's a sponsor of this legislation that we were referring to, and also Walt Jones of North Carolina, a Republican, and the two co-sponsoring Democrats, Rohana and um, uh, geez, Polkine, uh, Mark Polkine right, from Wisconsin, right. and now 26 other co-sponsors, I'm told, wow. yesterday, we, huh. we've got 26 on, it, all agree that the the law is quite clear that the aumf while it in itself was a bit ambiguous really only supports action against those who perpetrated 9-11 or if you want to extend it those state actors who might have assisted them if those state actors are identifiable so Yemen has absolutely nothing to do with that except that it harbors right now and this is what makes this so complex the most dangerous element, judged by our intelligence community and our law enforcement community, principally the FBI, who have the best people, in my view, to determine this, mm. um, of Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and so we have said, and we've di- differentiated in H Con Res eighty-one, which is the name of the legislation I was mm-hmm. referring to, to mm-hmm. get us out of Yemen. Um, we have said in there this does not impact what the AUMF that you cited does cover and that is the small group of u.s. special forces who are going after al-qaeda in Yemen that is unaffected what is affected is the illegal and we say that we say it is illegal use of american military force to support saudi arabia and the united arab emirates in this brutal war in Yemen that as you said is approaching the dimensions of the worst humanitarian disaster since world war two and the UN has a group there right now uh, working on labeling some of the actions war crimes. So this this, this is the differentiation. We're not saying that the United States under the a- AUMF doesn't have the right to go after al-Qaeda, but we do not have the legal right unless Congress says uh, blesses it to go after uh, the uh, opposition to Saudi Arabia in Yemen. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and we'll be talking about al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula as this discussion goes on. Now, Most Americans, I mean, we've all heard of Saudi Arabia. We know it's a country made rich by its oil and that they often share some of the wealth with the people uh, of Saudi Arabia. We know a lot less about Yemen. Could you tell us a bit about the two countries, their economies, their size, in their geopolitical power, Saudi Arabia and Yemen.
1: Yemen is one of the poorest countries in the world. And uh, as one lieutenant I was training in 1980, who was from the Yemeni military, said to me, I was a goat farmer, and they came and got me and sent me here to be trained by you. Now I'm a lieutenant in the Yemeni military. That sort of summed up Yemen. Yemen. It's a very, very poor country. Uh, it's had struggle after struggle after struggle, principally as many countries do between its, quote, north, unquote, and its, quote, south, unquote, and the peoples in those regions. It's had all kinds of uh, religious problems as well as uh, problems with poverty, as well as problems with hosting Al Qaeda because of its relatively destabilized state. Mm. And it's had some really horrible leaders in Sinai. Uh, who have exploited the the problems in Yemen, including the poverty for their own power purposes, as so often happens in states like this. As you said, Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, sharing a border with Yemen, uh, is a country infinitely wealthy sometimes, it seems. Um, And most of that wealth has been been, uh, accumulated because of the oil, and much of it over time, particularly the first years after World War II, um, provided by the United States. And frankly, because of that awesome wealth transfer, and those are Henry Kissinger's words, not mine, mm. that we had to send to the Persian Gulf in order to buy that oil, the Saudis became, in order to sort of shift some of that wealth back at least and not make it an a, a, on almost one-sided game in terms of wealth transfers, the Saudis began to buy our weapons. Often the Saudis didn't even need what they bought, but they bought it so they could you know, repatriate some of those dollars that they were absorbing in terms of the oil we were buying, our allies were buying, like Japan and Europe. Um, and so that became a Faustian bargain, if you will, over time. We tolerated one of the most poisonous regimes on the face of the earth. If there is a regime, a state regime, that supports, as Donald Trump recently accused Iran of doing, Global death, destruction, terrorism, and chaos. It is Saudi Arabia, not Iran. But we've had this poisonous relationship with Saudi Arabia, which is basically on—it's uh, uh, based on money, yeah. um, both theirs and ours—and on this relationship that has developed around that money ever since the end of World War two
0: Yeah, they've had. Eight... Go ahead.
1: Yeah, growing even more poisonous if you will as uh, Bibi netanyahu came to power in tel aviv in israel brought an extremely right wing government with him and formed a tacit alliance of convenience with saudi arabia so that now we find what once was the the head of the group of arabs opposed to israel uh... being in tacit alliance with israel because of the persians on the other side of the gulf huh. uh, all about power all about money all about uh, a game of power and money And our side uh, features one of the most brutal regimes in the region, Saudi Arabia.
0: Uh, You talk about a great game. That's what they used to call the struggle between uh, the Ottoman Empire and the Russians years ago and the Brits. Oh, my goodness. It just goes on and on and on. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, your host. We're talking with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, uh, who uh, was a uh, chief of staff to uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell. And he's written an article, an op-ed in The Hill called Congress and America's role in the Saudi Arabia War. How did this war start? When did it start? Who are the players uh, in the war in Yemen?
1: You need a Hollywood cash sheet. <laughs> I mean, It is, it is so complex. Yeah. Boiled down to its essentials, though, is you have a government that collapsed. You have a government that replaced it and now you have rebels on the side of the government that collapsed and you have the government that replaced it having been overwhelmed by those rebels and put on the run the rebels now occupying the capital and other regions and the saudis taking great umbrage to that because the government that was in power was very very helpful to the saudis in keeping things the way the saudis wanted it and so the saudis essentially started the war um, So, so you have you, you, you need a sheet yeah. to keep track of the players uh, one of the complications now and this is happening in Syria too don't don't oh, let me uh, don't let me get away with saying that this is just happening in Yemen it's happening in Syria too yeah. and it's going to start happening in Iraq one of the things that has happened one of the phenomena of the war in Yemen is that the saudis are fighting alongside al qaeda right. and for the purposes uh, al qaeda is fighting for And the Yemeni rebels are fighting against al-Qaeda. And we've got special operating forces trying to eliminate al-Qaeda or bring it to as low a position as as possible. So you've got this crazy alliance that pits us with the force that's helping al-Qaeda and helping al-Qaeda grow and become even more powerful in what is a very, very Afghanistan-looking state now. And nobody's saying anything about it. I mean, how many Americans even know what's going on over there? How many Americans know that what we're doing is actually increasing the power of the group that attacked us on
0: 9-11? Nobody knows that. Nobody knows that. Even And, and when you say it, you know, I hear it coming from you, obviously, uh, as a colonel, a former aide to our chief of staff to uh, Colin Powell. You know what you're talking about. But it's like, what? How can that be? And yet, as you say, you can't tell the players without a scorecard. And it changes virtually minute by minute. And it's a very, very complex area. And certainly in Syria, you know, the Syrian Free Army, who, what, where, where, you know, <laughs> who knows where the heck the weapons go. And, and among everyone
1: in the... At, 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 at one time, this I, I brought this up with my seminar last week, and my students' eyes were bugging out. At one time, we had our Central Intelligence Agency backing one group in Syria and arming them and supporting them, and our Pentagon backing another group and arming them and supporting them, and the two groups fought each other in Syria. Uh, um, This is how stupid sometimes we are in our bureaucratic approach to these things and our lack of transparency amongst the members of the bureaucracy even.
0: Oh my goodness! What is that song by Pete Seeger? Waist deep in the big muddy, and the big fool says to push on. Yes, uh, it, it, it goes on and on and on. You know, everybody in the U.S. and and Western Europe agrees that ISIS is a very bad bunch and cannot be in the least bit tolerated. We, you know, they're they're bad guys. Another frightening group that you mentioned is. A- AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. You write that the Saudi-led coalition and the forces of the Saudi-backed former regime have allied openly with ACAP and even fought alongside them. As a result of the war, ACAP is now uh, poised for the first time to compete for national power in Yemen. I read that and I was absolutely taken aback. I wonder if if you would compare uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and ISIS and how the U.S. may be unintentionally, perhaps, actually strengthen them? Is it just, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, Mark Twain said something about never ascribe evil intent where mere incompetence is the likely culprit. I wonder if that's the case here. How did how did this happen? I mean, compare ACAP to, to ISIS, if you would, please, Colonel.
1: Well, m- most of the time I would subscribe to that. After some 40-plus years in government, both the State Department and the military, I would subscribe to the theory that incompetence is usually what you should look for. In this case, though, there's plenty of incompetence. I think it's more ulterior motive. And what you just described described some of the neoconservatives in this country who have been very categorical in saying that if it is beneficial to unseating the regime in Tehran, then they will ally themselves with ISIS, al-Qaeda, Lashkar-e-Taiba, or any other terrorist group necessary. Mm -hmm. Much the way, for example, we did in the 1980s when we backed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. because they were against the Soviets. Mm -hmm. We knew, we in the intelligence community, we in the military, knew how nefarious this group was that we were backing in Afghanistan, but we figured we could handle them once the Russians had departed. Uh-huh. Little did we contemplate <laughs> that they would attack the United States and kill people. Al-Qaeda is still probably, under Aman al-Zawahiri, the new leader mm-hmm. after bin Laden was deposed, uh, the most dangerous group in the world. They have global capabilities. They have global intent. Take Hezbollah, for example. Hezbollah makes them look like pikers, but only in the region of Lebanon, Syria, and so forth. Hezbollah has no real global intentions, nor do they have real global capabilities other than perhaps intelligence gathering. Al-Qaeda has said and demonstrated that it will attack wherever it can, whenever it can, and it is stated that its objective is to bring the great Satan to its knees, read the United States. Yes. So Al Qaeda is probably the most dangerous group out there and what we're doing in Yemen, what we're now doing in Syria is increasing Al Qaeda's power, its reach and its capabilities. Many I know you I know your listeners will have a hard time believing. <laughs> really? it, but many of the weapons that we unleashed in Libya, for example, uh, when we took down Qaddafi. Yes. Many of the weapons that we've been supplying the various groups in the Syrian war many of those weapons are now turned on us or will be turned on us in the future. You can guarantee that that is going to happen. We flooded the place with weapons, and we had no idea to whom we were giving some of the weapons, nor did we realize that many to whom we were giving the weapons were going to turn around and sell them to whoever was the highest yeah, of course. The next the next day.
0: Well, of course. The profit motive. And in is-
1: Syria right now, yeah. we are actually taking sides with ISIS and al-Qaeda, When it behooves us to to try and stop the Syrian army, the Bashar al-Assad's army, and the Iranian Guard Corps allied with them, and the Hezbollah elements, and with Russian air power overhead, we are actually taking the sides of those we went to Syria in the first place, ostensibly (laughs) to eliminate ISIS and al-Qaeda.
0: Wow, I'm I'm laughing, but it's... Unbelievable! I'm just—it's—it's just so bizarre. I mean, this is real through the looking glass kind of stuff. It's just amazing.
1: Alice went down the rabbit hole. That's for sure. Yeah, (laughs)
0: that's for sure. And a lot of people are dying, and it doesn't help the security of the United States. It doesn't. in
1: fact, it injures it.
0: Yeah. And I definitely want to get into that. I I wanted to ask, you know, you talked about uh, Libya when when that government was was overthrown. Thanks in large measure, I have to say, to former Secretary Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. She convinced Obama uh, to to go along with that. And it's a total mess. Now, what was the original rationale given by the Obama administration for backing the Saudis in this war?
1: It's as... It's, it's almost as disgusting as anything I've said so far. Oh, no. And I, you know, I, I had an opportunity to meet with President Obama in uh, 2015 in uh, the West Wing, in the Roosevelt Room, and I was stunned when the first words out of his mouth to me and General Paul Eaton sitting to my left were, there's a bias in this town towards war. That was that was a direct quote there is a bias in this town towards war now i was amazed at those words coming from a sitting president because i thought i'd never hear them of course as an academic who's taught this in the nation's war colleges for six years and in civilian institutions for twelve years now i knew that i knew there was a pronounced bias in washington for using the military instrument instead of diplomacy instead of economic or financial power the military instrument was often the first one of choice, and I could only assume that Secretary Kerry was sitting right beside President Obama at the time and looking uh, uh, rather uh, hurt as President Obama said these things. He had been very, very much an advocate of ground troops in Syria at that time. You may recall. Yes, I could only imagine that President Obama had gone through at that point seven years of his eight years and figured it all out, and he and it had to be Libya that more or less was the the coup de grace, if you will, Mm -hmm. teaching him that lesson. Because Libya was a farce, a farce brought on by Samantha Power, by uh, Susan Rice, and as you said, most most forcibly, by Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. Um, Libya was done in a way that left, for example, more arms to be sold further to the east to terrorist groups and others, warring parties in places like Yemen and places like Syria, then probably had been unleashed at any single time in the history of North Africa and the Middle East. Wow. Gaddafi had a treasure trove of weapons that included fifteen thousand shoulder fired missiles.
2: Wow.
1: We we have been trying to buy those missiles back at an average price of five thousand dollars apiece, we being the CIA This is really what Benghazi was all about when Chris Stevens, a very courageous ambassador, was killed. Chris knew what was going on, and Chris objected to it and was trying to see if he could find out details about it so that he could make a more strenuous objection to the State Department. And unfortunately, he got killed in the process. But this was all about trying to secure these weapons and, in some cases, trying to gather enough of them up so we could sell them to our then- most uh, likely uh, allies in syria and elsewhere uh, it, libya is a tragedy comedy um, mostly tragedy but comic in the sense that we did so badly in a number of ways and now it is such a basket case and i will say look to yemen look to iraq look to syria look to all these countries that we have impacted with weapons and war to be equal back basket cases at least for the next twenty or thirty years.
0: No, and it's just great for the U.S. interest right? Oh my goodness! Well, it,
1: <laughs> it, you know, for for someone like Bibi Netanyahu and Avigdor Lieber, Lieberman, his Minister yeah. of Defense in Tel Aviv, and their right wing government, they yeah. that, this is partly their strategy. They want those around them: Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, ultimately Iran probably even ultimately Saudi Arabia and the whole Gulf Cooperation Council, to be destabilized, to be in chaos, to be without real leadership, to be essentially collapsed states, because it's their theory that that best protects Israel's security. If they're collapsing, they can't very well mount uh, attacks against Israel. My point has been all along, and I've said this to Israeli after Israeli from all walks of life political, intel, military, and so forth is okay, in the short term, BB's strategy makes sense, but in the long term, it's extremely dangerous because this chaos is going to produce things that you did not expect. Like, for example, now it's produced an alliance between Iran, Hezbollah, the Syrian main army and Russia and they're marching towards Israel. This is a very very dangerous situation for the mid and long-term security of Israel and Netanyahu has been partially responsible for creating it.
0: Yeah, I do th- see Netanyahu is is one of the most dangerous aspects uh of to to the state of Israel. They're bringing it on themselves. Now the much so. Oh, yeah. The Saudis looked to United Nations Resolution 2216, calling for the restoration of the government of ousted President Hadi. What do you know about this resolution? What is its purpose, and how did it come to pass the United Nations Security Council?
1: I think the original purpose was to try and support what looked as if, you know, with, with noses held— it looked as if it was a reasonably good political process that had replaced the old president with the new one uh-huh. I don't think anyone thought at the time that there would be such an upsurge of opposition to the new president and that the old president who'd been in power for so long he knew every skeleton in every closet and was truly a corrupt dude I'm not trying to defend him he really was corrupt um, Sally um, and and so it 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 became like so many things in the Arab world, something we didn't understand. And much of the U.N. Security Council didn't understand. And so when they passed this resolution without this kind of understanding, they were simply saying what you, uh, by rote, would say, restore the duly elected government. What they didn't realize was that there were a lot of people that didn't want that duly elected government. And there was an old guy who didn't like being thrown out of power. There was a very propitious alliance for him to effect immediately with the rebels, and so you've suddenly got a war and you've got a war that's Saudi Arabia, and here comes the real crutch here. You didn't have to have this war. You could have probably had more or less a civil conflict within Yemen as it has experienced many times before. The Egyptians weighed in one time, you may recall, the the Egyptian army now calls Yemen its Vietnam. Yeah. That'll tell you something <laughs> <laughs> about external powers inter- interfering oh, in goodness. Yemen. Yeah. But it didn't have to be this way. But you suddenly had thrust into the limelight in Saudi Arabia a new man, a young minister of defense who we now know as by his acronym MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, who is now the heir apparent, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, and who has more or less pushed others aside, other royals aside, and sort of taken... the the lion's share of power, and he wanted to demonstrate that Saudi Arabia could, in fact, do its own wars and do them successfully. And so he launched Mm -hmm. this conflict and uh, got the UAE to go along, as they often do, like the lapdog of Riyadh. (laughs) And that's where we are now, with MBS having started a war he can't finish, and indeed, and here comes the crux, he is losing. So not only is the United States supporting a brutal, perhaps the most brutal conflict now in the region, a region that's going to produce half a million casualties from cholera and starvation, not only is the United States providing intelligence and refueling of their fighter bombers and possibly even AWACS control and certainly precision-guided munitions, the United States is in this conflict with UAE and Saudi Arabia, and they are losing which means we're losing they're not going to win this conflict they're going to have to figure a way out and a way out that leaves them at least a little bit of face we're going to be standing there holding their bombs as they admit to the loss whatever political solution is achieved we need to get we, we need to be there of course forcefully and try to help that political solution be one that lasts but the saudis have lost and yet they're still pursuing the war I see this as being, along with some other things MBS has done, the, the new crown right. prince has done, I see this as being ultimately, potentially, unwinding of the Saudi monarchy in Riyadh. That's how serious it is.
0: Yeah, I've wondered There's
1: about A lot of people who aren't comfortable with MBS having moved so rapidly into the heir apparent position and it just remains to be seen if those people will be quiescent or if they uh, will begin, begin to push back.
0: Well, I've wondered about that. I've I've learned a little bit about the Saudi government, uh, especially the new leader. They, they are increasingly nervous about their own people perhaps rising up and threatening the monarchy. Uh, I, I wonder, they must be factoring that into what they're doing. Does that... Uh,
1: that's part of it, that's part of it as, as you asked earlier and i I just I just skipped over it I should not have right. The real Obama rationalization for it was, We've done so much to hurt the Saudi-U.S. relationship, and in effect, the Obama administration was trying to back slowly away from Saudi Arabia, a smart move in my yeah, my view, Really, and to move a little closer to Iran, or at least uh-huh. to have better relations with Iran, another smart move in my view. Because yes. the real hegemon in the Gulf, the real power in the Gulf is Iran, not Saudi Arabia. Ah. The only way Saudi Arabia is is if we back them to the hill. So the reason Obama decided to go into Yemen, as it were, to put the U.S. in the Yemen behind the Saudis uh, holding his nose was because he wanted to repair the U.S.-Saudi relationship. However wrong that initiative might have been, that was, that was his uh, move. And they threw it out there that Iran was helping the Yemeni rebels, and so the U.S. had to go in there. Now, the fact of the matter is, That Iran was not helping in any way the rebels in Yemen until the Saudis started the war. (laughs) So that's the sequence of events, if you will. Uh, But it did make a uh, some somewhat reasonable sense with Obama trying to get back and patch the relationship up a little bit. Mm. I wouldn't have supported it. Mm. I I could see where the political powers in the country, very enamored of Saudi money, might have made it very difficult for Obama to do otherwise. But that was the original reason for our our going in to help this out. He's now the, that reason doesn't even exist anymore. And what President Trump has just done with regard to the only diplomatic achievement of the last twenty years worth its salt, the joint comprehensive right. plan of action, the nuclear agreement with Iran, he has just tubed that. So, we have nothing going with Iran right now in terms of talks. We're not talking about their ballistic missiles. We're not talking about their support for terrorism. We're not talking about the war in Yemen. We have closed off all conversation we did immediately upon President Trump's inauguration with Iran. We have not used any of the channels that the Obama administration oiled and got ready for us to use in regard to having a little bit closer relationship with Iran and therefore balancing it off with Saudi Arabia and thus having a much better position in the Gulf region with all the parties. We've just put that aside, and now we're headed for regime change in Iran and another war.
0: Oh, my goodness. If you just tuned in, I can't believe how lively this is. Just incredible. Bert Cohen here. Uh, This is Keeping Democracy Alive, which is always a struggle. Our guest today is Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, uh, who wrote an op-ed in The Hill magazine calling for Congress to end America's, Saudi, America's role in the Saudi Arabia's war on Yemen. And he uh, is quite knowledgeable about the Saudis. He's a retired U.S. Army colonel, former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell. And I'm wondering, people on the ground. I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of people in that region, the Middle East, what is the? I wonder what the feeling is, just on the ground, with, with average people between the Saudis and Iran. I can guess that Iran is a little bit more popular, shall we say, than the Saudi royals these days.
1: I think you, you would have to say that. Polling certainly corroborates that, both our own polling and polling done in the region by uh, polling groups that I have some respect for. Um, and, and, and you've got a couple of things happening right now. First, the situation that we were starting to talk about in Yemen, what you have in Yemen is polls showing that the people of Yemen, on, on any side of this conflict, mm. believe that the war is the U.S. war, yes. not the Saudi war. Right. That, that's their opinion of it. They, they think it, well, that that's where the weapons essentially come the from. Saudis are acting as a U.S. proxy. Right which if you look at the power differential between the two states really makes some sense yeah. <laughs> they're not all that stupid in thinking that um... but overall in the region you're you're going to get even in iraq um, i shouldn't say even in iraq prominently in iraq you're going to get polling that indicates people believe the biggest threat to their life to their future to their prosperity indeed to the very stability of their state and their city and their community is the United States not some external threat like Israel not some external threat like Iraq or Syria not the Syrian main army and not Bashar al-Assad but the United States of America you're going to find the same thing in Pakistan the polls in Pakistan are off the charts in terms of you would think with all the knowledge of history of that region that any time you poll the Pakistanis, you would find that their number one threat would be India. Not true. Their number one threat they feel today is the United States of America. This is basically the kind of polling you get with some variations throughout the region. You get the United States as the the state actor, if you will, that the region fears the most. Over four hundred million people fear the most the United States. million people. That ought to tell us something about our policies and our actions.
0: And out of the 400 million people, I'm sure there are some people who uh, might get a little bit uh, angry and get uh, a little bit crazy and a little bit determined to uh, to fight the, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the the devil, the great Satan, whatever. That doesn't increase our security. It just amazes No, it, me. it,
1: it takes me back to 2002 well, when Donald yeah. Rumsfeld asked his own chiefs of staff, his joint chiefs of staff and his chairman, Tell me how we're winning when every time we kill one of them, we create ten more. Right, that's what we're doing. But I, you know, this is going to sound very cynical, very cynical. No, why not? My old boss, Colin Powell, yeah. once called this thing we've created now the terrorist industrial complex. Ooh. And while he might not have gone this far, I will go this far and say that we have made out of terrorism a very lucrative, profitable industry. So many Beltway bandits, so many groups, so many uh, think tanks even, have made their money, have grown prosperous on this business of counterterrorism, right. and, and that it's very difficult to even think about uh, you know, bringing it back to where it's reasonably proportional to our interest, where it's not sucking the very life's blood out of the National Security Establishment. It it has turned out to be, as the Cato Institute pointed out recently in a chart, a very interesting chart, threats to Americans. And it included everything from dying in an airplane accident to dying from a terrorist attack. And when you look at that chart, very well documented, you understand that the average American has about the same probability of dying from a terrorist attack as they do from a lightning strike. And yet, we have spent, by even conservative estimates, since two thousand and one, right. we have spent two point seven trillion dollars on that lightning strike. And it hasn't that made us any more buys secure. Reason.
0: And it hasn't made us any more secure. In fact,
1: no, it's made us less secure.
0: Unbelievable. Well, that old Pogo uh, cartoon, "We Have Met the Enemy and He Is Us."
1: You got it. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I, I, and and, and go ironically enough, maybe not ironic. <laughs> Osama bin Laden in his fatwa, sometime around 97, 98, as I recall, yeah. essentially said that was his strategy. His strategy, he, he knew he couldn't bring the great Satan down. Right. He knew he couldn't fight it one-on-one. But he knew that if he attacked it in the right way, that it would defeat itself. And that was his strategy. Wow.
0: It seems like Osama bin Laden won more than he could have possibly imagined. but maybe he I
1: think s- he would probably, if he were alive today, he would be exulting in what he's managed to accomplish.
0: I don't like that, I have to say. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I read an article by Abdallah al-Mualimi the permanent representative of Saudi Arabia to the United Nations, titled, It's Up to the Rebels to Stop Yemen's War. He argues that his country is protecting the Yemenis from the violent imposition of a, quote, theocratic regime modeled on Iran with a Hezbollah-type militia holding the reins of power. To the best of your knowledge, Colonel, how accurate is that?
1: Not very. I I find this argument that's constantly hauled out in private and sometimes in public by the Saudis and to to a certain extent by other Sunni groups in particular, that there is this sort of Sunni versus Shia conflict going on, and that, of course, from the Sunni perspective, the Shia are the most venomous, the most poisonous, the most dangerous, the most violent, and so forth, Rather, rather ludicrous in light of the history of both groups. Um, Take Iran, for example. When President Trump said the other day as he Mm decertified that Iran was spreading death, destruction, and chaos across the globe, he couldn't have been saying a a greater mischaracterization, uh, a lie, an outright lie, because Iran has a history of non-aggression. Iran may be sponsoring Hezbollah, it may be supporting Hezbollah and Hamas and others, but that's directed at the nuclear power in the region. We forget that. The only thing the other countries have to oppose Israel with is terrorism, because they can't build nuclear weapons like Israel did, having Mm -hmm. stolen them from us, Mm -hmm. stolen the plants from us. Israel is a nuclear power, and the only way they can counter that is with terrorism or other forms of uh, non-conventional warfare. So while I don't support Hezbollah or Hamas, I certainly understand as a military professional why they're there. Iran is supportive of those groups because it is supportive of a policy of opposing Israel. And, you know, you can say all day long that you don't like that, but, and I don't like it, but it's understandable. On the other hand, Saudi Arabia builds madrasas all over the world. Saudi Arabia supports the most violent Salafist Wahhabism in the mm-hmm, world. Mm-hmm. The Sunnis are the ones who produce Saddam Hussein's, not the Shia. So this argument that Saudi Arabia is protecting somehow the region, and even Yemen itself, from this violent group lands on historically infertile ground it just doesn't work that way now i understand what the real reason is with the saudis in that regard they fear their own shia yeah they they fear that one day their own regime is going to be threatened by the shia and other shia around their borders add to that fear so that they, you know they're showing that hey you shia you aren't worthy of anything, and we'll bomb and kill you till the last mm. man, woman, and child. How else do you explain targeting? Now, rem- remember, they have targeting help from us, yes. and they're using our precision-guide munitions. How else do you explain they're bombing cranes at the port that would offload water and food for cholera victims? And well... then explain... How, when we send the cranes to the region, replacement cranes, and want to set them back up because we're so ashamed of ourselves, I assume that we let this happen. They blockade the port so that we can't offload the cranes and reinstall new cranes.
0: And it's just it's amazing. And you know, when we've talked about you know the, the geopolitics around it. The Norwegian Refugee Council seems to be the most prominent voice in trying to draw attention to the actual crisis on the ground. What is the reality on the ground regarding living conditions for the—they started out poor, the people in Yemen?
1: As I said earlier on, this is probably one of the poorest countries in the world, and— um, and I think the conditions are, right now, as bad probably as they were, and, and I had firsthand evidence of this in Mogadishu and the surrounding areas in Somalia back in the time when we intervened and and at least tried to get food to the people. and that And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about stopping this hostility and getting food and water, clean water, to the people. Water, of course, and, and the cholera uh, disease itself are, are very very intimately connected. So if you bomb sewage facilities and you bomb water and you don't have then potable water and you don't have decent, you know, at least reasonable expectations of, of handling your human waste, then you've got a real exacerbation of the cholera problem. That's what's happening right now. Plus, there's no food getting in, so people are starving. So you 've got people dying of cholera at the same time you've got people dying of starvation, just outright starvation and you 've got the two feeding one another when you 're afflicted with cholera. you can be saved, but not if you 're emaciated and starving to death at the same time so this is This is a tragic situation, and it 's caused by the fact that bombs are still dropping, and the Saudis will accuse the rebels of not wanting to stop, and the rebels will accuse the Saudis of not wanting to stop well there 's a power there that's doing something that is antithetical to all of that. It's called the United States, yes. and it's our backing of the UAE-Saudi effort to essentially exterminate the Yemeni people. Oh, my that's got to stop, and that power's got to stand up, I think, and say, this is enough, this is enough, let's talk. If you don't want to talk, you know, we're out of here. And I don't think the Saudis could continue the war if we got out of there.
0: Well, that brings us to... Uh, a little bit of optimism, shall we say, that you have called for, uh, you know, Congress uh, stopping to support uh, the Saudis and to reassert their uh, (laughs) legal constitutional authority over war making. There's also this, as we mentioned earlier, House Concurrent Resolution 81, introduced by Mark I hope I pronounced these names right, Uh, Mike Pocan of Wisconsin, uh, a Democrat, Tom Massey, Republican of Kentucky, Roe Khanna, Democrat of California, and Walter Jones, Republican of North Carolina. That is a real bipartisan group. That would instruct the president to withdraw U.S. military personnel from the war and give Congress the opportunity to end U.S. support. Tell us what, what the status of that is. And if we pull out I'll keep it real simple. i hand you a softball here. If we pull out, doesn't the other side win?
1: I don't think so. Not if we uh, use our diplomatic power and economic and financial power to cause the talks to start and and to really get serious about it. But let's back up just for a moment. I don't think this is going to pass. Right. What I think would be the best we could ask for, because as you pointed out in your earlier remarks, no one is talking about this. No one wants any of the American public to know anything about this, including members of Congress. They don't want anybody to know anything about it. They just want it to happen and get over with one way or the other. So what we're looking for, because this this bill has what's called privileged status, the War Powers Act, and its invocation, in this case, gives it this privileged status. It cannot be stopped in committee. If they follow oh, the law, hmm. if they follow the rules, then the House Foreign Affairs Committee has to pass it out to the floor for a vote. Oh. And one of the things we wanted Mr. Pokahan or uh, any one of the four original co-sponsors to do, maybe Massey, the Republican from Kentucky, would be most impactful, is read it word for word on the floor of the House. And to have that embarrass the members of the House so much and embarrass the American people for their ignorance so much that we finally get some real recognition of what's going on there and some real head searching as to what we ought to do about it and then some real plans on doing it. That's what we're looking for. We don't think we'll ever get the votes to have it actually passed.
0: Right, right. Probably has about as much chance as a resolution calling for the impeachment of President Trump. Ain't going to pass right now. Now, now, in 1973, as I recall, Congress enacted, over the president's veto, President Nixon, the War Powers Resolution, which confronted the executive's overreach as a co-equal branch of government. America's founders, as we agree, specifically reserved to Congress the right to declare war. Why is that still important? And with all the partisanship in Congress, isn't that sort of outdated now and just too inefficient?
1: Those are are some of the arguments that have been vouchsafe for its being that way. I tend to go back to the Founding Fathers on this one. Madison was probably the most eloquent on it, and Madison said the surest route to tyranny is the war power in the hands of the executive? Wow. I think we're seeing that wow. proven. Yes, we have been at war in the United States for almost 17 straight years, and I can make a very powerful case for our being at war for the next 17. Sure. This is not what America is—a national security slash war state. Our raison d'être, our reason for existence, has become war to make war. That's not what our founders had in mind. I don't think that's what the majority of the American citizens have in mind today. So revisiting this idea of the war power, I think, is one of the most important things we could do at this time.
0: I would hope we could. Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, uh, who has written Congress and America's Role, in the Saudi Arabia's war on Yemen, uh, retired US Army Colonel, former Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell. I wish we had him back these days, my goodness. Um, (laughs) As a follow up to that, the Congress of today compared with the Congress of 1973. Now that was a time when anti-war protests had gone on for years and years and more and more Americans opposed our war in Indochina. We had had a public debate, a very public debate about this. You haven't had that public debate about this now at all. Probably intentional, I'm not sure. This resolution obviously does have some Republican support. Now, as, as you mentioned, it's probably not going to pass. What does it aim to achieve? And given the, that politicians pretty much always only act to serve their own reelection desires, what, what can come of this? Uh, I mean, does it have a chance of passing? Can we build up public support for this?
1: Well, as I said, I, I wouldn't say no, but I would say the chances of it passing are pretty slim, and what we're after is really just visibility. We, nice. you know, What we're after would be to restore the war power, yes, to the Congress, but, and this would be a good place to do it. But basically, with regard to this incredible humanitarian disaster that's developing right before our faces we're looking for visibility we're looking for the congress to at least have a debate on this to have a look at it to begin to think about it to Mm -hmm. begin uh, here's here's how bad it is in one congressman's office we had been talking for about fifteen minutes we as myself and the friends committee for national legislation the quakers who are as you know institutionally yes religiously opposed to war in all its guises so we're talking about the depth of the disaster we're talking about the deaths we're talking about the ridiculous nature of u.s. support and so forth and so on and one of the staffers for one of the members in congress said and this is a direct quote well this is a very niche issue for us Hmm. unquote niche issue five hundred thousand people dying is a niche issue The United States making al-Qaeda more powerful is a niche issue. The war power is a niche issue. And now you see how bad it is. Now you understand the depth that this republic has sunk to with regard to making war. So just giving this some visibility, getting the American people back energized over it, getting the Congress energized over it, even if it's only some of them, is a very important goal to achieve, I think.
0: I guess so. And I I wonder about the uh, ramifications, the ripple effect of our current president who, a few weeks ago, threatened in front of the world at the United Nations to, quote, totally destroy, end of quote, North Korea. Does that reckless statement increase the importance of Congress reasserting its legitimate constitutional power? Do you think that the Trump threat might actually help? Or hurt you this bet. resolution chances. Do tell.
1: Uh, you you bet. I mean, look at what Bob Corker said. I know yeah. Bob Corker said he's not going to run again, but at least he stood up and said something. Um, and this is so perplexing to me. I I've listened to Trump throughout the campaign and now as president, and at times I actually agreed with some of the things that he said like we shouldn't be intervening everywhere with our military, like we probably shouldn't have attacked Iraq in the first place in 2003, like things that seemed commonsensical, that the military was not the first instrument of choice Mm -hmm. and so forth. Now he's backed up on almost all those things, and he's become almost the neoconservative's neoconservative. Just listening to him talk about Iran and all the lies and half-truths and obfuscations that he threw out there was enough to make me think I was back listening to my old boss, much more a statesman than he, but nonetheless (laughs) delivering false intelligence to the United Nations Security Council in February 2003 about Iraq's weapons of mass Uh, destruction. I mean, you know, I, here was a real statesman doing that, yes. uh, led astray by the U.S. intelligence community yes. by the vice president of the United States. Yes, indeed. But a real statesman. Here's a guy who doesn't even come close to being a real statesman, and he's talking in terms that look like, you know, World War III would be acceptable to him.
0: It's amazing to me. And I, I wonder, you know, you talk about I'm still sort of stuck on that niche comment, you know, it's a just a niche issue. What do you think the chances are now, in twenty seventeen, which is not nineteen seventy three anymore, when when presented with the facts of the conflict, which Americans are not yet, if we are if we get the facts of the conflict, do you think enough Americans would vocally oppose the use of our tax dollars to bomb and starve civilians in Yemen? Education has to be a key part of this, I would think.
1: I think so. I I watched with some amazement, I, I will admit with some amazement, as President Obama and his Secretary of State at that time, John Kerry, prepared to put ground forces of significant quantities in Syria. And I watched the American people weigh in with the Congress and with the White House. And President Obama even admitted this in that meeting I referred to earlier. When those cards and letters, those emails, those telephone calls, and even those constituent visits took place on the Hill and in the White House, they changed their mind. In fact, I had one senator tell me that he had never, in 26 years in the Senate, he had never seen such an outpouring from the American people. I had a member of the White House tell me that it was a similar experience in the White House that they'd never seen so many people weighing in by telephone, by email, by tweet, you name it, saying that the American people in essence were as one in their opposition to putting major US ground forces into Syria. We need something like that again.
0: Yes, and it does work. People think, "Oh, I there's nothing I can do." Nonsense. There's a lot you can do. It yes. did work there. It absolutely did work. So, we're at the end of the of the discussion here. What can listeners do? the The bill number is uh, what is it? HCR eighty one.
1: House House Concurrent Resolution eighty one. Uh
0: huh. Right, and we can urge our members of Congress to uh, support it.
1: And yeah. The latest report is that Ed Royce, who is the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, is going to use some par- parliamentary gimmick to try and stop it. He's already uh. put it off. It was going to be. It had to go forward on the 15th of October. It didn't. He's now postponed it to the 2nd of November. That was his first parliamentary uh, gambit. But the the word is on the street in the Congress that uh, they're going to do everything they can to derail it.
0: Of course they will. I guess it comes back to money once again. The Saudi money connection, the oil connection, it's been there for so long.
1: Well, well, one of the people who's helping Ed Royce do this is Marv Thornberry, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, who is being talked to by Raytheon and Lockheed uh, and others who are selling the bombs to Saudi Arabia.
0: Oh, God. Unbelievable. Well, if people are interested in following uh, your work and keeping in touch, is there a website you can point people to?
1: Um, no, I, do, I really don't have anything. They, <laughs> they can go to the William & Mary website. I'm there, but uh, I don't I don't have anything, really. I am just not uh i'm very ill disciplined in that regard
0: (laughs) (laughs) right somehow i don't believe that being a colonel in the military somehow i just hard to believe you don't have discipline well this is all all
1: i I can do to keep up with my students (laughs) (laughs) well
0: that's good very very informative here very powerful stuff and it's extremely important we are not a niche issue this is a lot of lives here and american security thank you so much for spending the time with us today colonel lawrence wilkerson thank you
1: thanks for having me
2: I've been waiting for something to happen For a week or a month or a year With the blood in the ink of the headlines And the sound of the crowd in my ear You might ask what it takes to remember When you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is drifting to war there's a shadow on the faces of the men who sent the guns to the wars that are fought in places where their business interest runs on the radio, talk shows and the TV. You hear one thing again and again. How the USA stands for freedom, and we come to the aid of a friend. But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments killing their own Or the people who find they can't take anymore. And they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone. And there are lives in the balance.